In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Today we'll continue together our study in the book of Psalms. We will jump to Psalm 130, which is 129 in the Agbaya, because this psalm we almost pray it every time we gather together. Uh, usually when we pray the 12th hour before the Bible study. So I thought it would be a good idea to study this psalm and then we can go back uh, to study some of the other psalms. Psalm 130 in the Bible, 129 in Agbeah, which starts by, Out of the depth I have cried to you, O Lord. Okay? It's one of seven psalms in the book of Psalms that are psalms of repentance. Psalms of repentance. There are seven psalms in the book of Psalms that are psalms of repentance. Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. And the psalm of repentance is unique because a lot of times when we are, for example, persecuted or we're joyful or we are facing certain tribulation in our life, it's easy for us to go to God. But sometimes when we ourselves are sinning, we kind of, sin puts a barrier between me and God. So the, the Psalms of repentance are unique because they express that sort of struggle where I want to pray to God, but I can't. I want to talk to him, but I'm not able to but I know that he's my only hope, okay? So this is kind of the psalm that will help us to understand what to do. This is also one of the psalms of the pilgrimage. From Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, these were the psalms that when people come from outside Israel in the diaspora, when they come to Jerusalem, they will pray these psalms. And you can imagine when somebody is far away from a holy place, and they come to the place where they know that this is the only place they are allowed to worship, and the only place where worship is accepted, they will feel the reverence of the place. They will feel the reverence in the place. So it's extremely important because this psalm is repentance. It's also one of the psalms that people use for pilgrimage. It's also one of the psalms of ascension, or the psalms of ascent that people would say as they were going to the church or as they ascending the steps of the temple. So it's a psalm that is extremely repeated in the scripture, extremely repeated in worship. It's actually, this psalm is an individual psalm. Like you're not praying as a nation, you're not praying as Israel. It's a single person that's crying out to God. And by the way, in the psalms and in the scripture, you will see sometime we cry out as a nation as a church, and sometimes I cry, cry out individually. And every, every, every repentance, every type of repentance has a unique element. When we repent as a community, it almost requires a lot of interpersonal relation for people to rebuke each other and to talk to each other and convince each other and realize our own mistakes and our own sins and and we feel like our salvation is connected, which could be a challenge. When I repent personally, sometimes it's a challenge because I feel lonely in the process. I feel I'm alone, I feel I'm dry, I feel I'm not able to connect. So there's that element that makes it difficult, okay? So 
the the book this book here uh, this psalm here is an individual who's pleading for deliverance from the depth of sin pleading for deliverance from the depth of sin he's saying that the, the sin is like a spiritual abyss a deep dark hole i don't know how to get out of it i don't know how to get out of it and I think it's important for us, before, before we start talking about the psalm, it's important for us to emphasize this idea. The idea that we can only fully able to pray the psalm when I understand the consequence of sin. I'll give you a, a passage from the Apostolic Constitution. It sounds a little bit harsh, but it gets the point across. See what it says. See, it says, when you see the offender... With severity, command him to be cast out. As he's going out, let the deacons also treat him with severity. And then let them go and seek for him and keep him out of the church. When they come in, let them entreat you for him. For our Savior entreated his Father for those who have sinned. As it was written in the Gospel, Father, forgive them, for they know, know not what they do. And it goes on and on and on. When somebody sins... The church used to have a system, of, of course, if we apply today, people will think this is really harsh and judgmental, but the point of the system is for us to understand the impact of sin. Because sometime when we do not understand the impact of sin, we're not gonna be able to understand the grace we're receiving. And we're not gonna be able to understand how valuable it is and how much we have to protect it. You guys know the story of uh, Saint Empress of Milan. He was a bishop, and the emperor, Emperor Theodosius at this time, in a city called Thessalonica, there was a Roman governor that was killed by the people. So the emperor ordered the massacre of everybody in Thessalonica. They killed 7,000 people. Saint Empress of Milan, refused to let the emperor into the church. He told him, you need to repent. You know how long was his repentance? Eight months. Eight months he stands in the back, beating on his chest, asking to be admitted to the church. And it's important for us to keep these things in mind because it helps us to understand the effect of the psalm. The psalm is a psalm of ascension. You're going to start ascending from the depth of sin to salvation. And you won't understand what does that mean unless I truly understand the impact of sin. I want to say the three things about sin before we start the psalm. First of all, sin is defined mainly in my relationship to God. It is not about the specific sin. It is about the separation that I feel between me and God when I sin. The separation that I feel when I sin. And you can feel it the most in prayer. You can feel it the most in prayer. A lot of times when we are in distress, when we have problems, we typically look inside ourselves. When people have issues, have problems, we typically look inside ourselves or look to people for help, or look for profession, professors, or, 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 or some even 
doctors. But sometimes the place that we're missing is the sin, is the repentance. That void, nothing can fulfill it. That void, nothing can fulfill it. That's why it's important for us to, uh, to make sure that we understand the impact of sin. This psalm is very short. It's only eight verses. So the psalm has a structure. The first two verses is a lament. The repentant person is lamenting over his or her sin. Verses three and four, it's confession of the sin. You're confessing your sin and admitting the sin. Verse five and six is waiting for the Lord. And we'll, under, we'll try to understand what he means by waiting for the Lord. And verse seven and eight, is confidence in the redemption of God. Confidence in the redemptions of God. Let's start with the, uh, the first verse. The first verse, it says, Out of the depth I have cried to you, O Lord. Out of the depth I have cried to you, O Lord. Here the person who's repenting, depend, de depicting himself in the lowest part of sin. It means, God, I have seen the humiliation all the unexpected action that sin brought me to. It's almost the same cry that we hear in the book of Jonah. When Jonah said, out of the belly of the fish, I have cried to you. He's almost expressing the great distance between him and God. Out of the depth. Out of the separation, out of the dryness. I have cried to you, O Lord. In the book of Wisdom of Sirach, uh, chapter 51, 9 says, And I sent up my prayer from the earth, and I begged for rescue from death. And I sent up my prayer from the earth, and I begged for rescue from death. It is a feeling that there is a danger of sin. And I am begging for help. Begging for help. Now, what is, what is the psalmist is looking for? The psalmist is, is saying, look, I'm so far from God. And only the forgiveness of God can deliver me. Only his forgiveness can give me a new life. Can break that long distance between us. Depth, in a way is a complete alienation from God. I became a stranger from him. That's why to the people who are holy, to the people who are godly, sin or guilt or any discipline by God, they feel it immediately. And that's why the saints of our church have always practiced the idea of instant repentance. And this is one of the things that sometimes we're missing in our spiritual life. We need, whenever I catch myself sinning, right away I repent. Immediately I repent. That's the heart that is godly. That's the heart that feels this. Jonah in chapter 2, verses 2 and 5, he says, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Shiloh I cried, and you heard my voice. The water surrounded me. 
even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. He understood that his biggest problem that he disobeyed God. And now he's waiting to hear his voice. He's waiting to hear his voice. Be careful, the psalmist here is not a cynic. He's but he's convinced that his ties to God were so firm that he could call on God for help in the hour of the deepest need. He's not doubting that he can call on God. Even, if the midst, even in the midst of sin, I can pray the psalm. Out of the depth, I have cried to you, O Lord. You feel like part of the psalm, somebody's distance, and the other part is intimate. To you, I know you. Would you allow me to be that far from you for that long? Would you leave me in that state for so long? I know you, and I have no doubt that you will, you will, you will hear me and help me. Verse 2, he's telling God, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. Why are these words significant? These, are, these words in this verse are important for two things. Number one, they are reminding God of his covenant with Israel. How? If you look in 2 Chronicles 6.40, this is when, Moses, when Solomon was building the, uh, the, the, the temple. When he prayed, he told God, Now, my God, I pray, let your eyes be open and let your ears be attentive to the prayer made in this place. To a Jewish person, there are certain words, certain words connect him to a place, connect him to a covenant. And that phrase, let your ears be attentive, was mentioned specifically with the promise that Solomon asked God when he keep his eyes on the temple. The psalmist is seeking God and repenting because of the covenant, because of God's promises, because of who God is, because of what God wants, because of God's promises, not because of his righteousness. He's telling God, remember the covenant. Remember these words. They sound familiar to you. That's why every time we pray in the church, we pray the book of Agbeya. What is Agbeya? The words of God. We tell God, hear your own words. These words are familiar. I don't want to pray my own way. I won't know what to say. I want to pray your word. The second thing here is telling him, hear, hear my voice. Hear, by the way, here is not a sense of a demand or a command. The expression was used when a Jewish person laments. 
and you can might hear it in, in the Egyptian culture when somebody is, is there's a funeral and something you know be like some people see hear what happened see what happened they start screaming and kind of going through some of the events that happened to lament so here he's doing two things he's telling God God remember your covenant for I am in a grieve and from I am in a very great state of lament he's not making here any reference to a specific sin because he sees the impact of sin regardless of the specific sin and I, by the way this is an important part repentance sometimes we focus so much on the details of the sin and the specific of the sin and that one sin that makes me feel like I'm far away from God but the, David, the psalmist is not focused on this at all. He says, look, there is something off between my relationship with God. And he could have a specific sin in his mind. He might not. But the focus is not on the sin. The focus on the relationship between him and God. God, I want to be restored. I want to go back. I want to see you. I want to taste you. I want to be able to pray. I want to be able to rejoice. Any attention I give to sin, whether positive or negative, is harmful. Any attention I give to sin, whether positive or negative, is harmful. The way we repent is we focus on God's promises, who God is, and what he wants from me. Repentance is the return to God. From verses 3 and 4 is a confession of his sin. He's telling God, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who should stand? And this verse, by the way, explains why the depth is related to the sin. It's not a, it's not a problem of suffering or persecution. Because he's telling God, O Lord, if you mark iniquities... So the depth that he's in is the depth of sin. Who should stand? The confession of his sins here comes out of guilt. Not out of illness, not out of persecution, not out of homesickness. It's coming out of guilt. You know, somebody else in the Bible used exactly the same phrase. In Ezra chapter 9 verse 15. Ezra the priest was praying to God. He said, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous for we are left as remnants. And as, as it is this day, here we are before you in our guilt. Though no one can stand before you because of this. Ezra was a priest that he wants back to, uh, to Jerusalem to lead the spiritual revival of the people. And he's standing in front of God and telling him, telling him God, this is happening because of our guilt. Who can stand in front of you? He's not justifying his sin. He's not saying, God, it's not my fault. He's telling God, I have no excuse for my sin. Who could stand in front of you? If God counts our sins, how can I ever stand in front of him? Not only this, imagine this. Imagine if you go confess and God says, okay, you know what? I'm going to 
forgive you, but on judgment day. Not today. These sins will be held together in my hands until judgment day comes and I'm going to forgive you. God gives you immediate forgiveness. Without God's forgiveness, I cannot stand in his presence. Every time I stand in the presence of God, it's because he forgave me. That's why in Luke chapter 17, the Lord said, when you have done all things which are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Our Lord Jesus Christ wants us to have the mindset of how we live a repented life. You want to have a repented life? Yes. Understand that the main reason you're able to stand in front of me is because who God is. Because God is not counting iniquities. And even if you have done everything that's, that was required of you to do, you have not done anything new. Look, I want to just tell you something here, and we're going to see this as the psalm evolve. When Christ said this, he's not trying to belittle us. He's trying to give us the mindset that would help us to live a life of humility and a life that allows us to enter the presence of God. If we keep feed our ego, we cannot stand in front of God. So God here in, in, the, in the Gospel of Luke is giving us the way, the mindset, how can I repent? How can I repent? I am here and standing in front of you, O Lord, because you forgave me before. And you forgive me today. That's why in verse 4, he's telling God, hey, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. God you are full of forgiveness. I am here seeking that. That's what our Lord told Moses in Exodus 34, 7. He's telling him, I keep my mercy for thousands, giving, forgiving iniquities and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilt, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's to the third and fourth generation. God wants to forgive, full of forgiveness. The one thing that's important to know that God's forgiveness is in a way inclusive. God does not say, you know, I'm going to forgive you for a couple of sins, I'm going to leave behind few. Forgiveness means I broke the wall and I'm in the presence of God. The forgiveness is present as I said earlier, you don't have to wait for judgment day to receive it. Forgiveness is for those who want it. That's why in the creed, the fathers put this. He said, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. One of the most liberating, freeing, element of faith that we believe in. People might not forgive us, 
your husband, your wife, your friends might not forgive us. But God is full of forgiveness. That's why in Romans, St. Paul said, Blessed are those whose, whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. St. Paul is saying, once you get forgiveness, you are blessed. Remember last time we said blessed? The only person who's blessed is God. To him is all the blessing. So it's once you become, once you become forgiven, you become Christ-like. The path from a sinful person to a Christ-like forgiveness. That's it. How long does it take a kid from a kindergarten to become a PhD or a doctor? Years. The path from a kindergarten to a president in Christianity is forgiveness. So, now, the psalmist has said something, something beautiful in this verse. He said what? He said, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. What is he saying here? He says, when God forgives us, this leads to fear. Because once I see the result of sin and how guilty I feel and how separated I am from God, I won't sin again. And by the way, sometime... God makes us enjoy his presence less when we sin because he wants to remind us that next time when you sin, it's hard to get up. It's not immediate. As if he's almost training us. The fear that resolves is telling God, God, you're so amazing. I do not want to be far from you. I'm afraid to be far from God. This is, by the way, a fear not of punishment, but being far away from God. And this is the true test of repentance. If somebody says, I live a life of repentance, the question becomes, do you fear God? Do you fear him? Do you make sure before you commit the action or make a decision that you know it's not going to affect your relationship with God? Fear opens the door for us to experience the presence of God. This is what St. Peter said in 117. He says, And if you call on the Father, who is without partiality, judges according to each, according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. If you call on the Father, conduct yourself throughout this time of your stay here in fear. If you want to call on God, you have to conduct yourself in fear. So he laments, he confesses his sin. Now from verse 5 to verse 6, he's waiting on the Lord. You have to ask yourself, what is he waiting on the Lord for? And who is the psalm talking to in these two verses, 5 and 6? He's telling God with you is forgiveness. He's sure in, that he receives forgiveness from God. But let's see verse 5. It says, I wait, for the, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and his word I do hope. And in his word I do hope. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I do hope. 
There is a shift that takes place here. The psalmist is no longer talking to God, but now he's talking to the people of Israel. He directed the first four verses to God and told him, with you is forgiveness. And he confessed and lamented, and he received forgiveness. Now he's turning to Israel and telling him, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and his word, in his word I do hope. The psalmist is telling Israel, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Why is he telling them, wait on the Lord? Because the lesson that he learned from his repentance is to be submissive to the Lord. The lesson that he learned from his repentance is to be submissive to the Lord. Out of the depth I have cried to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. So he looks around and tells people, look, I received forgiveness, but I am now learned my lesson that I'm going to wait on God. And that could maybe open our eyes to the sin that he was doing. Maybe he was rushing. Maybe he did not wait for God to make a decision for him. Who knows? Okay? But he said, I have learned it. And waiting on God in general requires faith. And lamentation said, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him, it is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Not complaining and grumbling. The psalmist in waiting on what? Here in the, in the, he already received forgiveness, by the way. But he says, in his word, I do hope. He's waiting for a word from God. This word could be a new act of salvation in his life. Could be fulfillment of God's promise in his life. Could be assurance. He's waiting on a word from God. He's waiting to hear his voice. You see here, what is the psalmist? He's waiting on who? He's waiting on God himself. I wait on the Lord. He's no longer waiting for forgiveness. He's waiting to start have a unique relationship with God. Something new. Something new. You know, in the book of Exodus, chapter 34, Moses asked God, God, I want to see you. And God said, I'm going to pass by you and see what the Lord proclaimed as he passed by Moses. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgression and sin. When Moses wanted to see God, God told him, God is merciful, long-suffering, gracious. You want to see me? Beside the physical sign, I want to proclaim the truth about God to you. The psalmist is experiencing not only forgiveness, 
but experiencing the character of God. Be careful because forgiveness here does not depend on the feeling, whether you feel forgiven or not. The psalmist here, he's not doubting forgiveness. He's waiting for intimacy with God. He tells God in verse 6, My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch in the morning. Somebody who cannot wait to see God. Somebody who cannot wait to hug Him. You guys know the watchmen in the Old Testament? There are two types of watchmen that could this psalmist refers to. One, the guards that used to guard the city. And they are waiting for a new day. So they can rest. And the, the, the problem of potential attacks could, could go away. But also there's another type of watchmen. They are the Levitical guards who long to offer morning sacrifice to God. They basically, the priest has certain times where they offer the sacrifice. There are some people who watch. When we're going to offer the sacrifice and they're watching. He says, I am waiting for the moment as if somebody is going to offer sacrifice to God. You guys remember in the New Testament? Zechariah, when he entered the temple to offer sacrifice. Once in a lifetime. A day cannot be forgotten. One thing I want you to, guys to know about this verse, which is one of my favorite things about this verse, is that he's waiting with what? With expectation. He's not waiting without a goal. He's not waiting mindlessly. He's waiting. Something is coming in the air. I feel it. I know it. It's not I'm waiting on God. Nah. No, and he's not waiting for anything materialistic. I am waiting to meet him. Personally. I am waiting to meet him personally. The last two verses in the psalm, verse uh, 7 and verse 8, he expresses his confidence in redemption. There is another shift, another shift, that now he's going as if he's almost teaching the people of Israel what to do. After he lamented, confessed his sin, received forgiveness, he told Israel, the lesson I have learned is I have to wait on the Lord and I'm waiting on him. Now he's turning to another point where now he's telling Israel, you also should wait on the Lord. It means that he already received the intimacy with God. Like when he went from forgiveness to saying I'm waiting on the Lord, he already received forgiveness. When he said, I'm waiting on the Lord. And now telling Israel to wait on the Lord, it means that he received the intimacy that he's waiting for. In verse 7, it says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption. He received what is beyond forgiveness of sins. He received the presence of God. There is no uncertainty in his 
prayer. The psalmist freed himself from sin and now he turns to people and told them, hold on hope. He's actually telling them, look, renew your submission to God. I have tasted it. I was asking myself this question today. When we serve, do we serve because, for example, some people have a personality that is a hard-working personality. You put him as an engineer, as a doctor, as a pharmacist, as a husband, as a wife, as a mom. They're just a hard worker. They will do good wherever you put them. They know how to get things done. And if you put them in service, they will do good. Or I'm, am I serving because I have tasted God? And I'm turning around and I'm telling people, you also hope in the Lord. You also submit your life to God. Is it the fruit of my relationship with God? Or is it my own human abilities that serve? He's telling them hope in the Lord. This must flow out of experience. When people hear the word God is with you or God will take care of things, when they hear it from Pope Krollos, it's different than they hear it from us. Because when they hear it from Pope Krollos or one of the saints, it's almost like a prophecy. Am I able to prophesy when I speak to people? Can they feel it? Is it an expression of my experience with God? Verse 8, he says, And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. He shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Instead of God does not mark iniquities, he wipes all iniquities away. Now, the psalmist almost shifts to another shift to a Christian understanding. That God is going to provide full redemption. Full redemption. And he will allow all Israel to express and enjoy the forgiveness of God. The psalmist may not have understood exactly how forgiveness could be provided by God. Because in the Old Testament, the mindset of God as a just judge was very clear. But there is a fact that's happening. Whenever he tasted the forgiveness of God, the presence of God, the intimacy with God. He said, this God must provide redemption to all people. This God is merciful indeed, and he wants to save everybody. That's why in Romans 3, 25, 26, says, God, whom set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance 
God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he may be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, this is the Christian logical way of repentance. Unfortunately, in our era, people want to rush to the idea that God redeems everybody, he's going to forgive everybody's sin, he's going to do all this stuff. There was an ascension in the psalm. He starts from recognizing his sin, how it separated him from God. He laments the sin. He trusts in the forgiveness of God. He receives the forgiveness. He wants more intimacy with God. And once he tasted God, he said, yes, this is the God that wants to save everybody. This is the God that wants to save everybody. And that is how true repentance comes. When I understand how forgiveness and repentance work, it will make me not take them for granted. And I'm, I'm very confident, according to the teaching of the scripture and the fathers, that they did not want us to take forgiveness for granted. They want us to appreciate it so it can take us to enter the presence of God. And this is what the psalmist is praying. Every time I pray the psalm, I remember my own sins. And I remember how I could be so far from God, yet so close. It's two verses away for repentance. And when I repent, I am focusing on the quality of God, who He is, His covenant, His promises and what he wants from me. And glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.